0: Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's get into God's Word. Uh, Hopefully, you have your Bible with you. How many people? Show me your Bible. You got your Bible with you? Bible. How many people? It's electronic. Show me the screen. Show me the screen if you've got it on your tablet or smartphone. That's awesome. I'm glad you have it. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. We're going to go 8 to 15, the end of the chapter. And I would just, as we get started here, I I would just say that most Christians... Um, see if this isn't just true of you, but most Christians prefer to live a stable and safe life in which God blesses, but is non-intrusive. You know, God bless me, but don't like interfere in my life too much. Most of us would prefer that. We prefer that kind of life over one where God does Kind of beyond blessing, God does amazing and extraordinary and even unexplainable things in our lives, but which also opens us up to change and to very real risk. And and we're not necessarily wanting that kind of exposure to what God might do. Now, in today's passage, God's working powerfully in and through a man named Stephen, who we were introduced to him last week, along with six other men who were appointed to a very specific task in the church, and they needed these seven to administer a feeding program, the feeding of widows. But a lot more ended up happening as a result of this new feeding program. In fact, we find in the text, we'll read it in a second, but we find in the text that great wonders and signs were being done. Along with the meal deliveries, they would bring the meal and then evidently they would find out about some need and some great signs and wonders were being done. And it was giving Stephen and perhaps the others opportunities to actually speak the gospel, delivering a meal, signs and wonders. Here's an opportunity to share the gospel, to preach a message to some people who didn't know about Jesus yet. And when they were confronted by the opposition, a growing number of people who were opposed to the gospel, when they were confronted by that and brought to the council, this is what the passage is going to tell us. Stephen's face, this is in verse 15, Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. The glory of God as he was doing these things, the glory of God was evident in Stephen's life. And I read that and I wonder what would happen if every one of us was open to having God work in our lives in the same way. Would you and I show the glory of God on our faces? Now you have to know, some of you are stepping back, yeah, but Stephen, first church, he's in the Bible, he's a special guy. He wasn't a special guy, he was an ordinary guy. It's possible that the apostles didn't even know who he was in the midst of the thousands that actually were part of the church. When they had this dilemma, they actually said, the apostle said to the church, why don't you go ahead and pick out seven guys who can administer this program? And it was the congregation that picked Stephen and said, this guy's a leader. Let's put him in charge of it. Let's, let's get him involved. Just an ordinary guy who is just ministering the church. He's not an apostle. He's none of these things. Uh, A simple Christian. And he could be any one of us. And it's a reminder that there's no accounting. As we read this passage, you're going to see there's no accounting for what God might do in and through us. If only we are willing. So let's read the passage. This is again Acts 6. 8 to 15, and then you have your notes at hbc.info, and we'll work through uh, the outline that you see there. Well, Stephen, here's what we read in the text, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him up before the council." And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, you can see on the screen, you can see in your notes, there's no accounting for what God might do in and through you if certain things are true of you. The first one is this, if you are filled with His grace and power. Now, Stephen was qualified. He's a qualified servant leader, as we've already seen. He was selected out from among the congregation to do this job to serve widows, and he was described in verse 3 of this same chapter. We looked at the passage last week as a man of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Three qualifications that are given for Stephen. He was of good repute. In other words, people thought really well of him. He had a good reputation. It says that he was full of the Spirit, so there was evidence that God was working in his life even back then, and he, was, he had wisdom. In other words, he had a competency that was going to allow him to do this particular job. And the endorsement specifically of his character continues here. In fact, there's evidence in the text that a period of time passes between verses 7 and 8, so that after they were appointed to the task of serving meals, that happened now for some weeks and perhaps even some months, so that there was ongoing debate and dialogue between Stephen and his detractors, the opposition. There had been weeks and months of delivering meals, weeks and months of signs and wonders being done, and of the preaching of the gospel. And so time has passed here, and he's being more and more proven in who he is and in his character. And he's described in verse 8 now, after those weeks and months of doing this job, as being full of grace and power And he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen had, and and just listen to this little phrase, I think this is going to be helpful to us, he had godliness coupled with giftedness. It's godliness with the giftedness. It's not just giftedness, not just an ability to do something. But godliness was backing up his giftedness, and it resulted in this powerful manifestation of the Spirit in the city of Jerusalem and the impact that that was brought from that. Now, as I think about that here at Harvest, we test leaders before we bring in. We test staff before we bring them in, pastors or ministry directors, or we think about elders as we're selecting them, or even some other, uh, other leaders. We test them according to five criteria that we've drawn from different sources. We call this the five C's of leadership. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. Uh, character, competency, capacity, chemistry, and conviction. These are the five C's we test leaders Uh, by here. And let's just leave the first one aside for a second, uh, character, and come to the last four. When I'm talking about these, um, I'll often do these in in the last four, two through five, in just kind of random order. It might be just whatever order I happen to think of them in. In certain documents, they appear in a certain order. They may not always be in the same order because it's of little consequence, really, what order you put two through five in. Uh, Two is competency. Do you have the ability to actually do the job we're asking you to do? Capacity. Do you have the time to do it? Uh, When we talk about chemistry, are you able to work with people as you do the job? Are you a team player? And then the last one, conviction, as you're doing this job, as we ask you to do it, are you aligned with us doctrinally? Do you believe what we believe on, on both primary and secondary issues? That's really important. Do you share our values and convictions? But again, two through five, it doesn't matter what order you test those things in. But always, 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 every time you ask me about this, every list you'll ever see, every document where this appears, every website spot where it is, character is always first. Character is always first. Because without the godliness, the giftedness doesn't matter. And so this order, this character must top off the order. And and, and if it doesn't... This is where we get into these disastrous situations where a person's abilities outstrip their moral center or their godliness, and that can lead to a disaster. There are a lot of gifted people who are not godly, and that's not helpful in the church. It's not helpful to the work of God. In fact, you may have heard this um, quote before. Uh, Lots of people have said it. We couldn't track down who the original source is but maybe you've heard this before in one form or another. Don't let your gift take you where your character can't keep you. Don't let your gift take you where your character can't keep you. And we have, we have some personal experience with it. We have history with this. Some of you already kind of know this history and the experience that we have. Um, but we've seen this kind of thing where the gift takes a person where their character cannot keep them, And we see this with far too many celebrity pastors, and we have our own experience, but there's a long list, and I'm not talking here about any one person. Please hear that. But there are a lot of celebrity pastors who have fallen in recent years. It's a long list and sadly a growing list. And it's obvious from every single one of these situations, every book and article I've read about it is pretty obvious that the platform and the prominence that was given to them by the success that they gained exceeded their character, and therefore it exceeded their ability to manage it as it grew. And so they gave in to several temptations. And the kind of temptations they gave into were toxic leadership, bullying leadership, domineering leadership. They gave into, um, they gave into financial improprieties. They gave into sexual immorality. And they gave into various addictions. It's not always the same combination of things that bring these leaders down, but it all has a common foundation. It is that their giftedness outstripped their godliness. Now, Stephen had no such issue. Stephen, the text tells us, was full of grace and power. The grace that he had was the evident favor of God on his life. The power was the very evident manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. It was a divine or supernatural enablement that was going on in his life. And everybody saw it. And the Spirit was able to work through him in that way. The favor of God was upon him. The power of God was flowing through him because it was unhindered. Because he was a godly man. The word in that for us ought to be very clear. The Apostle Paul, just to kind of punch this a little bit more, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to Timothy and Apostle, he's a, Paul's an apostle, obviously Timothy is a young pastor and uh, Paul's mentoring him. He's pastoring a church and Paul wants to give him some things that are going to help him do that as a pastor. That's what the two letters are about. Here's what Paul says to him in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself Keep a close watch on yourself. Now, there were other places where Paul was more about minister to the church, but Paul wanted to really make sure he understood that if you don't take care of yourself, Pastor Timothy, it doesn't matter what you do in the church. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how good a preacher you are, what you accomplish in ministry, how fast the church grows. It doesn't matter if you're not paying attention, keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He's talking about the Scriptures. Now, I know because I've been doing this for 20 years, opening God's Word, preparing it week after week and bringing it here to you. And I just have to let you know that that is not an easy exercise. And I don't ever want to come up here. And you don't want me to ever come up here where I haven't first looked into the Word of God for myself. And when I spend time preparing sermons, it's not an academic exercise. The Word of God is a wrecking ball in my life. Long before you ever hear the sermons, it is a wrecking ball in my life. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. When you get up there to preach to people, make sure you've paid attention to yourself. Make sure you've listened to your own teaching. Persist in this, he says, for by so doing, here's here's, here's where the punch comes, you're going to save yourself and your hearers. In other words, your ministry backed up by your godly character, your ministry is going to be effective. It's going to save people. So if you want God to work in an unhindered way in and through you, it starts with, first of all, it's going to start with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you come to the cross? Have you come to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner, I need you as my Savior? If you haven't done that yet, that's the great starting point for this. You have to be in a uh, salvation, receive salvation from God and be in a relationship as a Christian with God. Secondly, it's going to be grounded in faith alone. You're going to understand that none of this is by works. I haven't earned any of this. Any works that I do are a, an outflow of the salvation that's already been done in my life. I'm not earning anything. It's by faith in, in faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's going to show itself in a desire, and this is like the daily desire of my heart, is to be more like Jesus. And it's ongoing surrender to the Holy Spirit, and that results in godly character, and that produces conditions through which God can work in powerful ways, grace-filled ways. And so the question is, are you open to that? Are you committed to godly living and allowing your gifting, your ministry to flow out from that? Here's a second one. There's no accounting for what God might do in and through you. Secondly, if you accept that you will face opposition. Christianity lived correctly is not accepted or popular in today's culture, right? Christianity lived correctly is not accepted or popular in today's culture. In fact, throughout history, Christianity has always proven unpopular whenever it moved into new regions, new territory, and preached to new people, And that's what we see here in the book of Acts, of course. What's playing out here in this incident with uh, Stephen in chapter six and seven, what's playing out here is the third of three confrontations in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. The first confrontation was in chapter four, verse eighteen. We'll kind of end it there. The apostles were brought in, and they were warned not to speak anymore in Jesus' name, but they were just warned. The second confrontation took place in chapter 5, and in verse 40, they were not only warned, but then they were beaten, flogged, and then sent back. This third confrontation now is in chapter 6 and chapter 7, and it's going to end, sorry, spoiler alert, okay, a little spoiler alert. It's going to end in Stephen's death in chapter 7. Three confrontations that take place here between the religious leadership who are opposed to this gospel message and the apostles in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's, and, and, and this th- these three confrontations, this third one is going to bring to an end the first phase of the mission, which was to bring the gospel to Jerusalem. And it's going to inaugurate the second phase of the mission, which is going to get the people out of Jerusalem and into Ju- the surrounding area, Judea and Samaria, to preach the gospel in those places. It's intensified Opposition to the gospel with this story with Stephen that forms the catalyst for the gospel to move forward. So verse 9, notice this. Then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and you could just insert the word synagogue, and of the synagogue of the Cyrenians and the synagogue of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So this is now like this consortium of Greek-speaking synagogues in the city of Jerusalem, the diaspora Jews who were living overseas and, and they, um, they learned Greek and Greek culture, but then they came back to the homeland, they're settled in Jerusalem, they established their own synagogues, they're Greek-speaking Greek culture synagogues, and it's this group of synagogue leaders who are getting together, who are now opposing Stephen, and the irony is that Stephen is a Greek-speaking Jew, so this is Stephen's own people who are coming after him, and you might ask the question, so why are they coming after him now? The reason why they're coming after him now is because they were okay with this sect called Christianity. They were fine with it, up until the moment that many converts were coming out of their synagogues. As soon as Greek-speaking Jews were starting to be converted and become Christians, they were saying, wait a second, we don't like this gospel either. And so thus, their op- so thus the opposition started. And this is common today. You know, people are okay with the church in society People are okay with the church as long as it's the, It's not offensive as long as it's not disrupting anything. For the most part, non-Christians outside of the church are fine with Christianity as long as it's the non-offensive variety. A church, so so in their thinking, a church that does good things in the community, so if you support the food bank and you support the Bayside Mission and you're helping the homeless and you're doing nice things in the community, you're engaged in the community and, and you're impacting people who are vulnerable and on the margins, as long as you're doing that kind of thing and keeping the rest of it to yourself, people generally speaking in Canada are fine with that. As long as as long as you're not condemning anybody and you're not trying to convert anybody to your way of thinking. And and, and you'll be welcomed into the broader community. with such a nice church. They do such nice things in the community. They're just nice people. But that's not the gospel. That's not a gospel-centered church, and we know it. To be be told that you can't condemn, to be told that you can't convert, is to cut the gospel off. It is to turn your church into some powder puff version, some some Christian-esque type club. But certainly not one that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel, listen to this now, the gospel is an offense. The gospel is offensive, and we are trying to convert people and to lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so because the gospel is an offense, it invites opposition because people don't want to be confronted by their sin, especially today. People do not want to be confronted by their sin. No one wants to be told that they're a sinner, but the gospel begins with the premise that you and I are sinners, And that sin is described in general terms as the thing that stands between us and God that creates a chasm so wide between us and God that we have no ability to cross that chasm ourselves. We have no ability in ourselves to be good enough or to do enough good things in order to become acceptable and pleasing to God. That's the general sense of sin. But then the Bible goes so far as to mention specific sins, and this is where it gets very tricky. This is where the world doesn't want to hear from us at all. Because specifically, the scriptures talk about adultery, but not just adultery, lust is sin. The scriptures talk about lying and, and theft, and even if you don't steal it, if you covet it, it's a sin. The Scriptures talk about murder. Sure, that's a sin. But hatred is, is equal to the sin of murder. Do you hate anyone? No one wants to hear this. And beyond all of that, the God of this age is the one thing you can't talk about at all. All manner, all manner of sexual sin. No one wants to hear any of this in our feel-good, say-only-nice-things affirming culture of the day. But Jesus Himself, who is the embodiment of the gospel that we believe, is described in 1 Peter 2.8, Jesus Himself described as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And it's that Jesus that we preach. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, people are going to trip over Jesus. If you preach the Jesus of the Bible, people are going to trip over Jesus. And if you want to be used by God, you simply can't avoid this fact, and therefore you can't avoid the opposition that comes as a result of believing and preaching this gospel. Ready for a third one? Are you going like, that's enough, I've had enough. Here's a third. There's no accounting for what God might do in and through you if you know the word of God. It seemed obvious to everyone that Stephen knew the Bible and and Luke records in verse 10 that they, and when we're talking about the they in verse 10, this is the religious council that included the scribes who were Pharisees who knew the word of God. These are the ones who are going to question him at the council. They had questioned the apostles before. They had questioned Jesus prior to that. And the thing about these scribes was that they were memorizing. They would grow up in synagogue memorizing the Old Testament. Memorizing it. They knew the Old Testament. You say, well, I I carry around my smartphone, and it has everything in it. Yes, yes. Your phone is smart. I agree with you. But these guys were smart. They knew the word of God, and yet they're recognizing that Stephen goes well below, beyond even them. That they couldn't contend with him in these debates and arguments, they couldn't withstand the wisdom that Stephen had in the scriptures, though they knew it themselves so well. They couldn't withstand the spirit that was in him as he was speaking. I mean, he not only knew the word, but he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and, and even his opposition knew it. And when we come back to verse 15 again, we looked at it in the introduction, we see that the council, they're just staring at him. They're gazing at him. They're just like transfixed by this guy. And everyone who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And, and we can only describe that as the glory of God was shining on Stephen's face. But they're so blinded that they see it, but they don't see it. You know, they see the glowing, they see the glory of God, but they're not willing to see it at the level where they accept it and believe it. Now, you'll recall, and this is a challenge for them because Gamaliel, back in chapter five, we looked at this a couple of messages ago. He, had advised the, he advised the council, and he said, you know what? Have nothing to do with these guys. Just let them go. Let them do their thing. If it's nothing, it's going to fizzle out. And if it's of God, he said, just be careful. He said, just be careful, because you might be found opposing God himself if you take these guys on. And now they have a guy who's not even an apostle, and he's standing before them, and he's glowing. The, the evidence is so there that this is the work of God And the words of Gamaliel are coming true right in front of their eyes. They can't see it. And so they're accusing him. In the text it says here, speaking blasphemous words against Moses. Now there's incredible irony in this that they would say that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. Again, because these scribes, they knew, the council knew the stories of the Old Testament. They knew what Exodus 34 said, that while on Mount Sinai, when the children of Israel were making their way to the promised land, Moses went up onto Sinai. And at one point, when he was conversing with God, he said to God, show me your glory. Like, I wanna see your actual glory, God. That's what Moses asked him. God said, you know what? If I showed you my glory, you'd turn into a puddle. He said, no one can look at God and live. He said, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by. You're going to get a little glimpse of of, of just the the back of me. And that's what Moses got. And Moses saw the glory, the the fading, passing glory of God. And when he came back down on the mountain, you remember what happened? The people saw his face and it it was glowing and it was terrifying to them. It's terrifying to them. Now these guys, they're accusing him of blasphemy against Moses, and he's the clearest example of Moses they've ever had. He's living for the Lord, and the glory of God is shining on Stephen's face the way it shone shone on Moses' face. It's shining on Stephen's face the way Jesus shone during the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. This is the glory of God showing up on Stephen and it's rooted in his salvation in Christ. It's rooted in his surrender to the Spirit of God. It's rooted in his knowledge of the Word of God. And I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about our attentiveness and our knowledge of the Word of God. It served Stephen so well, but... Are we as attentive as he was to the Word of God? I watched two things came across my desk this week. One was a short video by John Lennox, and he's a favorite of mine. Um, he is a, an apologist and a mathematician, not a theologian, uh, but he speaks on matters of the gospel and truth and from the Word of God. And it was a five-minute video that I watched about the Word of God. And the second was a short article written by Ed Stetzer and a young man named Andrew McDonald. Andrew has spoken here before uh, years ago. Both of these crossed my path and both pointed to a serious problem in the church among Christians today, namely our inability to i right... am going to use a verse here that Paul wrote to Timothy in, in one of his letters, our inability to rightly handle the Word of truth. That's the one verse our inability to rightly handle the word of truth, and and because we can't handle the word of God ourselves, because we don't know it well enough to do that, it leaves us susceptible to several dangers. Three of them I'll mention here, but the first one is this, and this is what Stetzer and McDonald are pointing out in their article. We are susceptible to conspiracy theories because we don't know the word of God and we're chasing after things that are not true because we don't know the word of god the second is is just flat out false teaching that we're following false teaching that some preacher's going to say something and do we really know if that's true and we don't know how to test it in the scriptures and the third, and Lennox really speaks to this one, is the wasting of time. We're susceptible to the wasting of time when we don't give our attention to the Word of God, and we fill the minutes of our days with so many things that do not matter at all. Not only do they not matter for eternity, we're filling our time with things that don't even matter now. And if only we would give our attention to the word of God. Lennox says in the video, he says we have to push against this tide of mediocrity where we don't take God's word seriously. And he goes on to say that this is an indication, our, our lack of attentiveness to the word is actually an indication, this is, this is hard to hear, I know this, but it's an indication we don't actually love God. I mean, if the only time you hear the word of God is when you come here, What does that say about your love for God for the other six days of the week? If you really loved him, you'd want to spend time with him. You'd want to hear him speak to you. And the word of God is the place where we hear it. It's God's love letter to us. So there is a correlation between how much you read the word of God and how much you think you love God. He goes on to say this. This is a quote right from the video. The Word of God is given to us to make eternal things real. Love that. And we need to spend time immersed in it, prayerfully reading it, with other people like this, and alone. And when we do that, there's no accounting for what God might do. And right here, like this is the moment right here. Some of you need to make a decision right now. I I need to get into a reading plan. I need to be reading the Word of God, not for five minutes in the morning to just give it a, a checkbox, but I mean I need to be getting into the Word of God, seriously reading it. I need to study, not just read it, but study it and understand it. And I need to stop making excuses for why I don't. Here's the last point. There's no accounting for what God might do in and through you if you have the integrity to withstand false accusations. We've already talked about character, uh, which is the basis, of course, for integrity. We talk about integrity to define it. um, Integrity is the quality or state of being complete or undivided. That's straight from Merriam-Webster. The quality or state of being complete or undivided. Some other ways of seeing integrity. It is wholeness. It is being the same inside and out. It's being the same in private as I am in public. It means it, Integrity means I never have to look over my shoulder. It means that if I'm accused of something, it's not going to stick. Integrity means I have a clear conscience. That's, that's having integrity. And Stephen had integrity. And Stephen's opposition knew that he was a man of good repute as verse 3 says. And so they knew that this man of integrity, if we're going to take him out, the only way we're going to be able to take him out is if we accuse him falsely. They were going to have to do to Stephen what they had done months before to Jesus, before his arrest. Mark 14, 57 to 58 Tells us how they brought false witnesses against Jesus, so they're going to need to make things up. They're going to need to. They're going to need to twist. They're going to take his words and twist them. They're going to find people who are going to invent things that didn't happen. So, verse eleven. Then they secretly, not exactly secretly, because we're reading about it. You know, they secretly. The Holy Spirit knows everything. Amen. Well, some of you don't want to admit that. The Holy Spirit knows everything, amen? Right. So they they secretly, they thought they were secretly doing this. They secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's a lie. Now to be clear, Stephen did say some things that brought about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. Jesus sacrifice for example Jesus sacrifice on the cross when he sacrificed his life we're going to take the Lord's table in a few minutes when he sacrificed his life on the cross that sacrifice according to Hebrews 10:10 was once for all so all the other animal sacrifices in the temple no longer needed to happen because Jesus had completed it and all those other animal sacrifices over all those centuries they all pointed to Jesus being the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. So yes, this represents a radical change to the tradition of the Jewish people if they would accept their Messiah. But if they had read their Scriptures correctly and understood them, they would have seen that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these things. But this threatened the power base of the Jewish elite. They called it blasphemy, but it wasn't blasphemy. It was fulfillment of the very promises of God if they had only cared to see them in the very Scriptures that they read and taught to others. So they did, they did five things here. The, the, this, this collection, this consortium of opposition leaders, verse 12, they stirred everyone up. they just stirring it up with people. Okay? It came upon... Stephen and third, they seized him. So this is mob justice. They don't have the authorization of any legal body to do this. But then they brought him to the council. Then verse 13, this is the fifth one. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. That's a lie. Verse 14, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. That's a lie, and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Not change, but fulfill. There's some truth in there. But listen, it's generously sprinkled with lies and fabrications. So these guys would have been experts at social media. Am I right? Experts at social media. They were ahead of their time in terms of cancel culture. We don't like what you're saying, so we're canceling the gospel. We're canceling Stephen. But all this was of little consequence to Stephen because, as we'll see in Acts 7, he was focused on eternity. He counted his own life as, as nothing. And everything Stephen had said was the truth, it was the gospel, his in- integrity was fully intact. And he was pleasing to Christ in every way. And so Jesus was using him. One of the greatest preachers, godly men of the last generation was a man by the name of Warren Wiersbe. And He said this, if you take care of yourself, and you can hear the echo of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in that line, if you just take care of yourself and walk with integrity, you may be confident that God will deal with those who sin against you. Maybe not in this life, but God will deal with them. Above all, don't give birth to sin in yourself. Rather, pray for those who persecute you. God will one day turn your persecution into praise. One day. And Christian, like, We have to get the long view of things and stop thinking about just the thing that's happening right in front of us right now. We need to be on a path of perseverance and endurance to the very end. And so expect and withstand false accusations. So here's the thing as we, as we, you know, kind of bring this in for a close. I don't know. I don't know what God wants to do in you and through you. I don't know what He wants to do in me and through me in the days ahead. I, I read a passage like this and I, and I go, well, it's not likely to look anything like it did in Jerusalem in those days and with Stephen. That was unique in a lot of ways. It was unique to that time. It was unique to that place. It was unique in that situation. But, we must still be open to God doing whatever he wants to do. Here and now, through you and me. That we, as as Paul writes, whatever God wants to do and however that plays out, it's just important that you and I, as Paul says in Romans 12, that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what Stephen did. It's a living sacrifice. I'm putting myself on the altar and I'm saying to God, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want with me. And allow him to work as he sees fit. If we would do that, there's no accounting to what he might do through us. There's no accounting for who he might save. There's no accounting for who might be healed. There's no accounting for the miracles that might happen, the extraordinary things that might be done. There's no accounting for what lives might be changed, including yours. So this is the kind of message where I I think it just needs some reflection. And whether you're here in the room or at home on the live stream, Right now what's going to be really important for us is to take this time of quiet to think about the things that we've heard and to recommit ourselves. If you're a Christian here today to recommit ourselves to this. If you're not yet a Christian to give your life to Christ, to give your life to this. Stephen thought it was worth dying for. And so, set your Bibles and your notes aside, put your phones and tablets aside and Even at home, let's get quiet right now and let's bow our heads as Ian plays. I'm going to give you a time of quiet reflection. Think about this message. Pray to God. Recommit yourself. You take this time right now.